Hello, I'm Caroline Carey. I'm a soul worker and soul doula. I have a deep understanding of the soul's journey from cradle to grave, and I've traveled between the veils of the spirit realms. I've studied the path it evokes, and I've come to understand why the majority of today's problems are rooted in the loss of spirituality. So my work, which is Middle Earth Medicine Ways, empowers people to find what is lost and to reclaim their own circle of strength by embodying their soul. And I do this by holding a space for healing and soul retrieval with shamanic skills, trance and conscious dance. I love creative writing and poetry. Please join me in listening to these wonderful teachers and soul workers, the facilitators and the guides of spiritual and shamanic work. They all have something very important to share and are a great gift to our communities. I've learned a lot from listening to them. I invite you to also. I don't think Eric Madden would mind me calling him a wild man of the woods. He's a real caretaker of nature, fascinating storyteller and builder of the most gorgeous haven of hobbit houses and roundhouses and traditional buildings that have been often forgotten in our times. He lives at Kaimabon and is in fact the creator of this wonderful retreat centre. I've had the good fortune to go and visit it many times and work there and experience for myself magic that has opened my heart to understand who I am and what my own purpose is. So I'd love you to listen to his story. It truly is magical. And one of those stories that makes you want to really engage with your own and look for the magic from deep within. So, um, yeah, enjoy listening to Eric and uh, yeah, let me know what you think. Eh? <laughs> it's a long time since I've been at Kaimabon. I miss it. It's such a wonderful place, but you are its wonderful founder and uh, creator of the space and um, and the storyteller of how it came to be, hey, and so many other stories, of course. Mm. But um, how are you? How's it going there? Yeah, well, it's good. Uh, I'm sitting in this uh, octagonal construction which we call the ring uh it's made of cob it's got a it's a reciprocal frame roof and it's got windows on almost every side overlooking the river this beautiful little river which is known as it's called avon Bachwen, the little white river or Bachwen. it can also be translated as a fair nook so um so this is my new office studio workshop uh, study and then just you know 30 yards away is is the tree house and that's where i sleep so you know i've i've kind of moved into this semi wild setting and you know i walk out through the woods to the tree house and back again and and it's lovely i i'm really happy here you're a real man of the woods aren't you <laughs> well i certainly am looking looking around me i just to see this wonderful wood forest in front of me you know there's all the different species of tree you can imagine really of course there's the great oaks and there's lots of little hazels and there's ash and alder and rowan and holly and hawthorn and everything around here really the full 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 um spread of of of, of um indigenous oak forest is is right in front of my eyes as i sit here so yeah um, that's that's, uh, that's amazing that that's something very special isn't it we're hearing a lot about trees at the moment and mm. a lot of harm that's coming to certain trees around the country and in other places of course but you're a real mm. protector in a way of those woods aren't you it's um they're very lucky to have you there <laughs> tell us about the the um the coming together of Kaimabon, like how did it begin I'll tell you what, I'll begin where I was born. Do that. <laughs> okay, I was born in South Australia uh, in a place called Wyala, which is um, not a very well-known place. Uh, I, 
it's on the what I claim to be the last coastline in the world to be mapped by European explorers, the down under of down under, the very edge of empire. And when I was 11 years old, my little family, my father, my sister, mother, and myself moved from Britain to, from Australia to Britain. It's more complicated than that, but I will just skip the, the complications at this point. And, uh, and when we moved, when I was 11, we ended up living in Windsor of Windsor Castle fame, which, you know, the castle is the oldest, largest, most expensive, longest continuously lived in castle in, well, certainly in Europe, possibly in the world. So the epicenter of empires so from, from the Normans onwards, it's been the the residents, the, the favoured residents of, of the royalty of these islands. So I moved from the very edge of empire to its very epicentre, from one extreme to the other, well, from the extreme edge to the centre, which became a bit of a theme in my life, edge and centre. Mm -hmm. And when I went into the school there in Windsor, my one of my teachers, seeing perhaps a, a sort of tanned and tussled wild boy with a, an Aussie twang nicknamed me Abo, Abo, A-B-O. Now in Australia, Abo is a, well, it's used in a pejorative way, bloody Abos, you know. But I don't think he, the teacher meant it like that, and I didn't know that then. Uh, in fact, I liked the sound of it. So from the age of 11 to 19 for eight years, that was my nickname, Abo, Abo Madden, I was known as. And somehow that seems to have gone into the making of me. Uh, and, it, and it set me on this quest for the meaning of abo, aboriginality. What does it mean? And uh, of course, it, you know, many associations really, ab aboriginal itself means from the beginning. So it's... Um, it's it's about early. It's primal. It's primitive. It's it's in, it's native. It's 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 uh, indigenous. And so, when I set out at the age of twenty one, twenty two, um, I thought I was going to travel around the world in two years, but in fact, it took me ten. Uh, but I was uh, not consciously, but I was on a, a quest for Aboriginality. The Land Rover going by. <laughs> now, the other thing that happened, and this is the complication I switched, flipped over, uh, skipped over earlier, is that my when I was six, my mother died. My mother died of polio. And unfortunately, she sort of kind of dropped out of the family conversation not long after that. And, and, um, my father remarried. My stepmother was from North Wales, so I had a, 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 a started coming up to North Wales to visit her, her family, and uh, I had a particularly strong relationship with her father, my step grandfather, who I call Tide, as Welsh for grandfather, Nine, grandmother, and Tide, grandfather, and he they lived on a farm, and and I. I helped out. I was, you know, chopping wood, feeding the chickens, gathering the eggs, digging the potatoes, and so on, going to the mart with him. And he was a great storyteller as well, a raconteur. And and um, when he was, I don't know what age I was actually at the time, but I remember we went once to the highest point on his land and he pointed across to the mountains and he he, he pointed out the summit of Snowdon, Erwidva, as it's called in Welsh and he, it seemed like he was proud that he could see the summit of the highest mountain from his land uh, and perhaps in some unwitting unconscious way he was also pointing to my destiny because now I live just on the other side of that great mountain so but I was also you know I needed to know about my mother who had kind of been forgotten and so when I set out on this quest, not only was I looking for Aboriginality, I was also looking for my mother. After Windsor, I went to Sheffield University, 
where I studied psychology and sociology. I think I wanted to know what it meant to be human. That's mm -hmm. why I chose those subjects. Wow. And uh, I was particularly interested in, in what the higher reaches of human nature might be. But that wasn't covered in the courses at Sheffield. They, they were more interested in statistics and experiment. And, and it was a very sort of kind of scientific method. They were more interested in, in mental illness than they were in mental wellness and, and what, yeah. what, the, what the human potential might be. So that's the third thing I was looking for was what are the higher reaches, you know, and uh, um, and finally, I mean, this all sounds very kind of rational and ordered and logical, but it wasn't like that at all. It just it's only in reflection looking back that I realized these things. But um, just before I left Sheffield, there was a a festival of light held, which was basically born again Christians coming together. And uh, I, I kind of went along and tried to have conversation. And I realized that I couldn't really. They were just felt to me anyway, very narrow-minded. However, I couldn't help but realize that some of them had had very profound transformations in their lives as a result of some kind of divine revelation. They'd gone from being criminals and addicts and, you know, alcoholics and so on into living relatively upright lives if you like as, uh, and and i just thought ah because when i studied psychology and sociology just what was interesting how do people change I thought maybe the key is here maybe some kind of divine revelation is is actually part of it or even the most important part of it so there we are we've got a stack of things that i was on the quest for there you know uh Quite a lot. mother the higher reaches and god it sounds pretty uh, pretty ambitious doesn't it you know very very <laughs> well, that's, that's why it took me 10 years rather than two you know and and i yeah i did go i went uh, it's a long i won't go into all of it but um i did have my own version of divine revelation uh, which culminated actually in hawaii spent some time in hawaii and I suppose what it was was a, a, a realization that of the vastness of the universe, time and space, and how somehow it was almost as if it had been focused like a magnifying glass, like a lens on the earth, and it had brought about the the uh, the beginnings of life. Uh, life had ignited on the earth and and of course had evolved and and eventually humans had come along and and uh, it was as if we humanity are the the result of this enormous amount of time and space and all focused in on this and so I thought, yeah, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? And then I thought, well, yeah, but I'm not much of a human being compared to some of the people who've been before me, you know, like Shakespeare and Einstein and all the rest. And then I thought, yeah, but they're all dead. I'm alive. I am a living human being. Mm. And so what, a, what an incredible privilege it is to be alive now as a, as a, as a human being carrying this, this consciousness that has been created by the universe and yeah sure there may be life in other places but we don't know about it and we might never know about it and it it may be that what is here on this earth is it's this is the only place in the universe like that mm -hmm. i know the odds are it must be somewhere else that's what everyone says but even if it is it's probably very rare sure so that gave me a sort of, because prior to that, I'd been down in the dumps. I'd gone through the dark night of the soul. I'd been very full of doubt and sort of negativity about myself. I was wasting my life. I knew nothing. I was useless and hopeless and all the rest of it. But by the, when I had that revelation, I couldn't go back to that anymore. It was just such a, a, an amazing realization that, 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 of the gift of, of, of human life. And uh, and it was my responsibility to then put my shoulder to the wheel and see, do what I could. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the 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 Hawaiian revelation, if you like. And then and then um, 
eventually I got back to Australia and I, I did find out about my mother. I went to Adelaide where she had come from and I I met her family and friends and went to places that she lived and read letters that she'd written and saw photographs of her and found out about her life. And of course, every every time I found out something new, I would I would have her, but in the same moment I would lose her. So the grief that I hadn't shed or expressed up until then was was expressed over a period of six months. But finally, after having done that, after having shed all those tears, I was able to get on with my life. Mm. As a couple of, for a couple of years as a psychologist in Adelaide, with the, in the Department for Community Welfare. But what I was really interested in was 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 something a bit more creative. I'd 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 I'd, um, I'd been uh, uh, I'd done some acting at, at at school in the sixth form. My very first play was Twelve Angry Men, which in which uh, twelve men, a jury, uh, retire to the jury room to to discuss and make a decision about about this young man who's accused of murder. And it's a hot day, and some of them want to just get the thing done. And uh, it seems, on the face of it, this guy must be must, must be guilty. So someone calls for a vote, and it's the vote is eleven votes to one, guilty. And in the course of the play, that one character, the eighth juror, changes everybody else's mind, and by the end of it, it's a unanimous vote, not guilty. Wow. And that was the part I played. I played the eighth juror. Can you imagine? You know, as a sixteen-year-old, a paltry sixteen-year-old playing this part, it was a very um, powerful experience. And it, and it, not only did it turn me on to to drama and theatre, because I've been studying. I was studying science at the time, but somehow drama, theatre, acting seemed so much more real. You know, yeah. um, more about life anyway. Uh, and, and not only that, it gave me this kind of template for standing up and 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 even if it was one against the rest of just doing, you know, my own thing, my, uh, you know, following my unique course. Mm -hmm. So um, eventually I ended up working. So that's what I was going to say. I, I got involved with community arts after the psychology work and, and and that led me into working in remote communities in South Australia in the Northern Territory and eventually ultimately all Aboriginal communities and over a four-year period from 1979 to 82 I worked in 50 small Aboriginal communities between uh, the South Australian coast and the Gulf of Carpentaria in the north as a community or bush artists as we call ourselves doing music art and drama in the communities and and also working with the men and the women and uh, finding um offering them opportunities to paint and recording their songs and stories and so on so i've got this incredible opportunity to be in these places most white and my people that go there are either missionaries trying to change them or anthropologists trying to extract information or government officials trying to control them but we were just going there putting on a show entertaining really and having a positive experience with them and uh, and so it was a very precious time and of course it also realizing the tragedy that has befallen aboriginal people you know so much has been lost broken forgotten and yet the places some of the places we went to were still very much alive in their tradition and some people met had only met their first white people 10, 12 years before wow. so still very strong in their traditional wow. way right. and so i got to go with them to ceremonies i got to witness them you know doing their their uh, singing and dancing their dreamtime stories and and painting the bodies and wearing their headdresses and stamping the ground and i discovered that when they did this they referred to it afterwards as having become who they were at the beginning of time wow. who oh, they wow. were at the beginning of time and in a way sort of bringing back their ancestral self into the present and i thought oh wow that's amazing i wonder if i could do that and then <laughs> not long 
just before I left, actually, I came across this book called White Man Got No Dreaming, which was a, um, a collection of anthropological essays, excellent book, actually. Um, but the title really hit me. You know, it was a quote from an Aboriginal man who observed that we white Australians had no spiritual connection to the land, to our ancestors, or to story. Mm. It's a very complex set of meanings, but, you know, you could summarize it like that. And, um, but it made me think if there was a white man's dreaming, what would it be? Okay. So just one other thing, when I was traveling, I had in my possession for the last few years, this book of poetry by Gary Snyder, American poet called Turtle Island. And at the end of it, there's a section called Plain Talk. And he says at one point, what you have to do is find your place on the planet, dig in, and then start acting point by point. And I thought, yeah, that's what I need to do. So when I returned to Britain after my 10 years, I was, I was looking for a place and a dreaming. So I did come back up to North Wales because my my grand my step grandmother my nine was still alive and uh, my, my tide by the way had died in my arms when I was nineteen years old and uh, it was quite a profound experience. I mean, it's profound at any time to 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 be with someone at the end like that. But for him, you know, for me, it was it was a very special relationship. He was my own, the only grandfather I knew. My two actual grandfathers had died before I was born. And he also had just two daughters. He never had a son. So he was a bit like the grandfather I never had. And I was like the son he never had. So, so um, we were very close. And he had grown up in this uh, household just above better Sequoid, which was a place where the local community used to gather for what they called Noson Lawan, which means uh, uh, merry evenings. And so there was a tradition of story and poetry and music and conviviality in that household that went back to the time of the bards. So I like to think that when he died, I breathed in his last breath. I mean, literally, he was in my arms and somehow breathed in something of his soul, you know, that that bardic soul. Mm. Oh, that's extraordinary. <laughs> so I'm nearly to the point where Kaimabo's going to happen, okay? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a long story. I try to kind of it's keep it. It's an incredible story. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I came up here, um, I did a show, I took a show about Aboriginal history and culture and present day circumstances around Britain, actually, um, sometimes doing it with Aboriginal partners who happened to be in Britain at the time. And I came up to, to, to North Wales and I did it up here. And I met, I met someone um, called, well, he's now known as Mac McCartney. Uh, he's yeah. renowned because he started Embercoom and has yeah. done amazing work. And uh, this was way before then, though, uh, he was running a sweat lodge. And I went to the sweat lodge on Anglesey in this morn, as it's called in Welsh. And um, the day after the sweat lodge, we, we walked over the hill and down to a, a holy well, St. Cyril's Holy Well, where we chatted for a while and then we were told to go down to the beach to find a pebble which we would put under our pillows and it would help us remember our dreams anyway i, I lingered behind and by the time i got down to the beach all the others had left so i cast my eye around the beach and then i suddenly saw this what looked like an eye winking at me from the edge of the water and i went over to look at it and it was a it was a pebble. I picked it up. It was a pebble that fitted perfectly in the palm of my hand, and it had a fossil in the middle that looked a bit like the sun, a circular with rays going out in all directions. 
And with these tiny little waves lapping over it, it looked like an eye blinking or winking. And not only is it unusual to find a fossil, it's the only one I've ever found, to find one in a pebble that fits perfectly in the smooth pebble that fits perfectly in the palm of your hand is again, uh, you know, very rare. And then to find one when you're looking for a dreaming stone, <laughs> remember I was looking for my dreaming. So, and that, that to me, well, it was a once in a lifetime experience. So, so I decided that it was a, it was um, a sign. Yes. And that this was the area that I should settle down, that I should live, North Wales, Northwest Wales, the mountain. Not Anglesey specifically, but this area. So I uh, I set out looking, and um, one day I was driving up the lane that I became to know as the Bachwen Lane, and there was a sign for sale at the top. I was on my way to see somewhere else, actually, and... As it happened, the other place, someone had already made an offer on it. So I came back, parked at the top of the track, walked all the way down, thinking, this is amazing, but where's the house? Eventually got to the house, looked around at the land and the beautiful river and all the little nooks and places there were. It's just a stunning spot. Fell in love with it, but then realized that I just could not afford it. Not that it was that expensive, but I had no money at all. So, so <laughs> very little anyway. Um, so I had to let go of it. But uh, soon afterwards, I went off on a, a meditation retreat down in uh, in um, Devon at, at Gaia House. And at the end of that week, after the surface chatter had all ebbed away from my mind, I was left with a really strong vision of what I could do here. Mm. So I came back to discover it had been sold and someone else was living here. Wow. So I had to let go of it for a second time. Anyway, some months passed, possibly a year, just about, and I, I thought, well, I'm going to go and look and see if I can find somewhere else. And uh, I'd let go of this place, but, you know, I was hoping for a place in the country with some trees. And so I went into Bangor, down the high street, in and out of all the estate agents, had a sheaf of details, was running late for an appointment, went into the last shop, whizzed around, was about to walk out, when the manager said, what are you looking for me at? What are you looking for? I almost said, oh, it doesn't matter. I've, I've got enough. But I said, well, a place in the country with a few trees. And he said, well, we've got this and this. And then there's this place in Vachwen. It's a bit difficult to get to. You've got to go down a half mile long track. And I looked at the picture. It was the same place. And it literally had come up for sale again just a few days before. Well, I still had no money, no accounts, no job. But I did have the vision. Yeah. Not that I knew exactly what it would be, but I just had a hunch that it was going to be a good place for people to come. So somehow, miraculously, I managed to manifest a 100% mortgage. I mean, you know, you'd never do that these days, of course. Um, I got I got some letters, uh, references, as it were. I'd worked for the Commonwealth Institute in London. I'd worked for the World Wildlife Fund. And I had my first book uh, coming, you know, kind of... Uh, contract if you like and plus a friend had sort of offered me a job around in the area so um that's how i managed it mm. and so the, the day before i was due to sign the contract however i went to the other side of the lake and i looked over here it was june right and i looked over the other side of the lake and it was gray and the clouds were hanging down and i was you know, I'd been living in Alice Springs, you know, in Central Australia, where the sun almost always shines. And I was filled with doubt, as one is before making yeah. a decision. And, uh, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> but that evening, I went to uh, visit a friend who used to have this little choir that, that people gathered and they would bring songs to sing teach each other songs and that night someone had brought a song and it's very short so i'll sing it to you went like this okay. sleep sleep tonight and may your dreams be realized and when the thunder cloud passes rain oh let it rain 
rain down on me. And after we'd sung that over and over again, it didn't oh. matter rain because it was about dreams being realized. That's so beautiful. So, <laughs> so the next day I went and signed the contract with a clear heart. And then the following day I ran into a friend, told him what I'd done. He said, you know what it was yesterday? I said, no, Midsummer's Day. I had unwittingly, I didn't know about those things in those days. I had unwittingly signed the contract on Midsummer's Day. Well, that seemed like a good omen, you know. And then I moved in three months later, just a few days before Sawain, 1986. Oh, gosh, so that, that That's 37 years ago now. And, uh, of course, when I got here, I still had no money. It was just me. I, I, I mean, I did have a partner at the time. She did here, live here for a while. But um, I, 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 soon after that, you know, I'd done this work at the Commonwealth Institute. Someone had been there one, one of the date one, one time, and he'd seen me, and he and he gave me a call, and he said, uh, "I was wondering if you'd be interested in doing some storytelling at historic sites." And uh, it didn't seem like it hadn't really been done before, so of course I said yes, even though I wasn't really a storyteller at that time. You know, I'd done some acting and singing, and um, you know, so on. Worked a lot with kids, but. Um, so anyway, I, I said yes, and, and uh, the very first place that I worked was down in Cornwall, just outside Penzance, at a place called Chai Sawster, which is a collection of what they call courtyard houses. There are these huge, they're big roundhouses with very thick walls, and then long, thin rooms, and another roundhouse, and they're all wrapped up in this great big wall. And there were nine of them there, sort of Romano-British, I think they call them. Um, and uh, before I, well, when I opened my mouth to speak, to tell these stories, I, my, I, I hadn't planned to do it, but I found myself saying, well, my name is Madern. And then I started speaking in a Cornish accent. <laughs> I've never in a Cornish accent before, and I'd never planned it or practiced it or anything. It just came out. And it wasn't until later that I realized that up from up there on Chisorster, you can look down and see the spire of the church in the village known as Madron, which is just outside of Penzance. It's known as the Mother Church of Penzance. And Madron is where my family name comes from, Madron. In fact, it's you go there now and it's actually dedicated to Saint Madden. So <laughs> I like to think that somehow my ancestors were speaking through me that day because I did it the whole week but after that it never came back the Cornish accent never came back I did other places in Cornwall wasn't there I came back even to Chisorster and did other sessions there it never came back just that one time wow. and the other thing that happened that day was I sat in this roundhouse and I thought whoa I wonder what it'd been like to live in a place like this mm. so a few weeks later, I met dear Jake Keane, who had just started this uh, little kind of ancient technology center down in the school in Cranbourne in Dorset. And he had built a roundhouse. He's built several roundhouses. So I knew it was possible to build one. And the following summer, he came up and he helped us build the foundations. And then it took three years to build the wall, just like one week every summer and then on the, the fourth year we we put up we thatched the, the, the roof and um with the help of a good friend uh nick mcsmith and jake was only there the very first time and then he came back when the thatching was almost finished just to finish off the the kind of the roof the, the apex of the roof and uh, afterwards, it was just him and I were sitting there in the roundhouse around the fire. And conversation got around to his original roundhouse, which it turned out had been burned down by, you know, deliberately an act of arson. And uh, I said, when did that happen then? Oh, he said, 1986. When in 1986? October. When in October? 26. He, it had burned down the exact same day that I moved in here. Mm. So I like to think, and again, this is fancy in a way, but you know, who knows how 
significant these things are, the, the seed of his roundhouse had somehow flown through the air and taken root here because it was exactly the same size as the one that he had built originally. And after that, he built bigger ones. So, so Eric, what's actually inspired all the other little houses? Because I've stayed there, I've worked there. You know, you've got a whole collection of really wonderful little buildings. What inspired creating those? Well, once we'd built the roundhouse, people people wanted to come here, you know, so we had to make some facilities for them. And so we, well, first of all, we we renovated the barn that was down there into the kitchen and meeting room. Mm -hmm. and then, of course, we needed toilets and showers. Initially, people stayed in, in, uh, in basically in tents, different kinds of tents. We had uh, uh, teepees and benders and yurts, Bedouin tents, geodomes, just about all the kinds of tents you can get which was great but they you know in this weather especially if people are coming and going all the time they don't really have a great lifespan so um eventually we have we realized we have to build something a bit more permanent and um i'd actually stayed with uh, down in devon at a place i think it was in ashburton and there was a place there called called a, a hogan and so i was curious about that looked into it and um I'm not sure how that Hogan was built, but anyway, we we came up with this design, which was an octagonal structure, um, and used straw bales. You know, I'd heard about building straw bales. Well, let's try straw bales. So, so we we built this this octagonal reciprocal frame roof structure using straw bales and lime render, and uh, it was a beautiful building. And uh, and so that's how the first dwelling was built uh and then i'm not sure what was the one that came after that maybe it was the the lodge which is also very hogan like in it's octagonal but we did it with logs this was done uh, uh, you know how the navajo build theirs we in fact when i was about to build it, it was very early days of google i i googled how to build a hogan and uh, amazingly this complete set of instructions came up which was actually actually from the Navajo people so we nice. we did that we built and I think what what I got I got the I don't know I wanted I wanted to try all these different methods I didn't want to do the same thing so we never had nothing is we don't have anything that's identical with anything else here it's all it's all different you know um, yeah. so we did the we did that and then we had the, the we did the built the cob cottage we worked with cob which is another traditional building material clay sand and straw lucky to have the help of Yanto Evans and Linda Smiley who are the authors of the hand sculpted house uh who helped us to build that and uh you know people used to come here and say oh it's like lord of the rings so we thought oh we better make it even more like lord of the rings so we built a hobbit hut hobbit you know, house, with, yes with <laughs> using the, the design of the door which is uh yeah well how do you know what a hobbit hut looks like when well, you watch the movie of course so you know there's one there's about three frames where you see bilbo baggins's door and that's what that's based on it was keith yeah. matthews who built that so um yeah so we've just done different things we've got a cedar cabin we've got um chalet which has got a kind of a logwood frontage and um and uh we've worked with hempcrete and of course the roundhouse is stone and thatch so we've done we've 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 used lots of different so-called natural materials here mm. and um and, and eric you really have created a very magical place um there's no doubt about that and i know from my own experience staying there being there working there with groups with um, and going through my own process there in fact the very first time I visited the space. Um, I had an extraordinary experience. Um, mm. created, yeah, that was that was with um, Bill Plotkin, wasn't Bill it? Plotkin. Was that the... That's right. Bill mm. Plotkin was there, and um, so that was my own process. And it was it was like the birthing place of my whole body of work. Do you know that's well, it, even though I know it had started way way back from the beginning of my journey, but it was where it became solidified in a way it was almost like it all came together like this this process that i went through and i've got quite a story around it but that mm. place kind of what lent itself to that and i don't know that i would have found it in in another place because it was just so perfect for what mm. for, for what i needed in order to discover that 
So just mm. the little broken down houses in the woods, the river, um, the experience of staying in, in those little houses by the river, the, yet the whole process of it just led to that um, wonderful experience that I had with sitting in front of two empty fireplaces in one of the old broken down houses where I got to see, all right, this is, this is what I need to spend more time with. And I went through a whole process of um, struggling because my daughter's boyfriend had dumped her back home. And should I be with my daughter? Should I be? Do you remember I was going through that whole process years ago? I mean, you won't remember all that, but um, yeah, you were very, yeah. you were very <laughs> um, supportive during that time. But should I be here? Should I not? I was split between two worlds. And then I'm there sitting in front of this, these two fireplaces going, yeah, these two worlds, two worlds, you know, so it all became part of the Middle Earth medicine um, process. So I think, you know, you've been a massive inspiration to me, to my work, to the mm. people that I've worked with, and everything else that you hold there. And I can imagine that there must be hundreds of people who've come through your mm. wonderful gateway, down that mm. wonderful rickety path, um, mm. down into the depths of Carnarvon, by the river, by the lake, and have dreamt something really profound into their own lives. Mm. Mm. Well, that's true. I think it does happen. Um, I mean, people come here and say it's their favourite place in the world, and these are people who've travelled and know a bit more of the world, you know. So, I understand so, that. Um, um, yeah, yeah. I mean... It's interesting. The building of the roundhouse was the first thing that we did, and it, and it, you know, in a way. I mean, again, a lot of this was only understood in retrospect. But if you you could say, well, it, it's the kind of dwelling that our ancestors lived in for something like three thousand years before the coming of the Romans. So it, it's a it's a way of experiencing our own aboriginality. It's like, what did we? You know, how did we live? back then you know it's, it's like a way of tuning into ancestral life and um of course being close to the nature and close to the elements that's a source of great inspiration to people as well and and healing actually the river mm. you know it's a beautiful little river that runs down one side of the the land it's it's just you know people find it very very um uh inspiring so so the setting is, you know, couldn't have, couldn't have been luckier in a way. Um, you know, we've got the river, we've got the forest, we've got the hill, we've got the the lake and the mountains, and then this little hobbit village. You know, so and not only that, it's halfway, if you like, roughly halfway between the summit of Snowdon, which or Arwidba, as it's called in in Welsh, uh, which is the um, the sacred, I think, the sacred mountain of these islands in antiquity. Halfway between that and Morn, Morna, Anglesea, as the Druids called it, as the uh, Vikings called it, uh, the island of the angels, which is which is the heartland of the Druids. So um, we've got this kind of, you know, um, we're on this amazing kind of song line, if you like, between those two places. And and over the last thirty plus years, I've been delving into the if you like, matter of Britain. And this has been the, the my quest for the white man's dreaming, you know. Okay. Don't think of it as the white man's dreaming anymore because the white man is, is very, it's right. too many connotations of colonialism and you know, empire and extraction and all that. It's more of a, mm. more of a wild man's dreaming, I would say now. Um, but I have been exploring with my good friend, Hugh Lupton, the, the, um, the old stories of these islands, the old oral traditions of these these islands, mm. from the from the Mesolithic all the way through to the the, the Middle Ages or to the to the seventeenth eighteenth century, when you know when mass literacy was begun and the old tales were kind of forgotten. So um, so we've been trying to in, explore those stories and um, and 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 I particularly have focused on 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 the tales of these mountains. And have actually written a book. Oh, here it happens to be Snowdonia Folk Tales, oh, which, which came well. out seven, eight years ago, uh, eight years ago now. And put a link on on uh, on here for that. Yeah, and uh, that that was, um, you know. So, I've, and I've also been telling stories. You know, I've worked in fifty Aboriginal communities, but I've also worked in fifty ancient 
for historic sites in England and Wales as well. I nice, worked for nice. Heritage, I've worked for Cadu. And in so doing, I have delved into the old tales of these places. And and so I, I, I reckon I have been kind of uncovering this mm. this uh, the, the the dreaming, if you like, of, of these islands, of this this particular part of the, the, the islands anyway, the, the mountains. Mm. Um which I consider to be the sort of ancient hub, really, of the of these lands, mm. and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are looking for a, a spirituality which connects them to this land. Yes. Uh, of course, you know, they'll go. We go off. I went to the Aboriginal cultures of Central Australia, and people go to South America, North America, to Asia, and all over, you know. And but those people that you talk to eventually will say to you, "Go and look to your own roots." Yes. And so that's what this is all about. It's about finding the spirituality that arises from this land. Now, I think there's probably a lot of people who are trying to do that. I'm doing it in this particular way. And I, I find that being here at Kaimabon and, and, and telling stories in the roundhouse around the fire, and now we've got the masks on the top of the walls of all the of many of the demigods and goddesses of Areri of Snowdonia surrounding us, yeah. looking at us, present there in that room. I call it now the Temple of the Ancient Ones. So, you know, my my quest for Aboriginality has resulted in this. My quest for mother, actually. Um, well, you know, I learned I've, it's it's become the goddess. Actually, it's become the goddess. In fact, we have a, a sculpture of Modron, the Great Mother, uh, and the place itself, named Kain Mabon, is 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 Mabon is is the um, is the son of the Great Mother. He's the great son of the Great Mother. Mm. So, um, one of the very old oldest stories of, of these islands, and the and perhaps the, the the last thing I would say is that the. Um, this the, 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 my exploration of this landscape has has led me to a place now called Dinas Emrys, which is associated with Merlin and prophecy. Uh, but it turns out there are many other connections with this place. In fact, one of its early names was this was um, Dinas Afareon Dande, which is the Fort of Fiery Higher Powers, the Fort of Fiery Higher Powers, and it's my view that it would have been an outpost of the druids all these all those years ago uh, where they would have cultivated higher powers and the, because of the stories connected to the place i think the higher powers were probably magic yeah inspiration amazing <gasps> magic thank inspiration you. thank you so much eric it's, it's such a fascinating tale and you clearly have worked all your life towards your sole purpose i mean it's absolutely mm -hmm clear i don't think there's any doubt about it is there that you're doing what you were put on earth to do and to find the magic of these lands so um do you feel really rooted here in 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 yes i mean it's it's you know it's it's a you know i'm not although i used to come a lot up here to north wales as a child i'm not i'm not um I can't say I'm Welsh, and I and I unfortunately haven't managed to learn the language. But nonetheless, I do really feel like I belong here, and I love it. I love the landscape around here. Mm. And um, I, I, when I looked into my ancestry, I found that my five generations back on my mother's side, they came from just near John O'Groats in, in Scotland, the northeast corner of Scotland, and on my father's side from Penzance down in the near Lands End. So the two extremities of the British Isles. Mm. So where are you from? That's a very yes, yeah, a question people ask. It's never been an easy question for me to answer, or a simple question. But here, I just I, I I'm here. You know, I belong here. I think, and, and, I, and I love it here. And there's much about the, where you love and how much you love it, really. Yeah, that's, that's... I feel that. In fact, I've been commissioned by the gods and goddesses to do this place. You know, so I'm doing their bidding. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. So we'll have to bring this to a completion, um, Eric, but I'm sure you could tell us so much more about um, your work and your storytelling. Maybe another time we'll get you on board. But um, for now, what, how can people find you in it? And can they come and stay? What, what do you have on offer? Uh, yes, we, 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 um, there is a website, climabon.co.uk, and we have a programme of events here from beginning of March to the well actually now into november so you know 
almost nine months of the year really and then we have a, an off season during the winter um but people can check that out there's a there's an events page there um we do get oversubscribed unfortunately we can't fit in everybody who wants to come mm. i think we probably get at least twice as many people who want to come here as we can fit in so um but yeah uh, check out the website uh, there's not much that I haven't actually got my own website anymore I used to but not but I am I have got a show that I'm taking on the road which which uh, culminates in the telling of Merlin's prophecy uh, when it's called the dust of the ancients so um, mm. if you're interested I might be in your part of the world before too long I, <laughs> I would be interested um, yeah I did a, um, a, a write-up for Gordon Selby Strong's book on Merlin recently, a foreword for him, um, which was recently published. So, um, yeah, I'm very interested. He really sparked my, sadly, he passed away um, this year, but um, yeah, great writer on Merlin tales and prophecies. I mean, just to finish with, I, as an example, yesterday I took about 20 people who've been staying here this week who are all. Psychotherapist. There was a professor among them, a couple of renowned druids, Philip Cargombing, one of them, um, doctors and and uh, psychotherapists and so on, who have been delving deeply into you know their connection with spirituality and nature, and um, took them one, along what I consider the most mythically rich twenty miles in Britain, up the Nantley Valley, and uh, culminated in in in. Uh, in visiting Dinosemris and it was we were very lucky with the weather it was a superb day and it, and it's it's actually a, like a song song line I think of it as the Math Mavon Merlin song line um, which is a reference to the Aboriginal practice of song lines and um, yeah and Philip said just this morning before he left oh it was it was the climax of the week <laughs> you're good at climaxes he said. <sighs> <laughs> So good, Eric. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today on Soul Purpose. And, uh, yeah, yeah, much love to the spirits of Kaimabon. And uh, you, know, you never know, one day I might uh, come and have a, a look. You're very, very welcome. <laughs> Go in these parts, do let us know, because it'd be great to connect. Yeah, okay. Much love to thank you. you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, and, all right. Thank you so much for listening right to the end. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And remember, you can be in touch with myself or this speaker. My website is middleearthmedicine.com. We have a wonderful membership platform that you can join for just £5 a month. And we have lots of recordings and interesting information that we can share with you there, plus meeting online with regular groups. You can also find the details of our speaker in the box below with their links, their websites, and a little bit of information about them. Thank you for joining me and being part of this Middle Earth Medicine community. I hope you'll listen to our next show. Please follow, share, like, whatever you can do to help this community to grow. We really appreciate you. Thank you.